you have your Bible, let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 12. This is going to be our last message in Romans 12. I've only done 25 messages out of Romans 12 so far, but uh, that's not too much of an exaggeration. So we are talking about love. It's about genuine love and what does that look like and how does it act, how does it respond. And so we are going to look, be looking at part two of um, that topic of genuine love. It was on Thursday, August the 5th of 2010. That began like a, an everyday occurrence in this little town of San Jose, northern Chile. 33 miners descended 2,300 feet below the surface after they kissed their families goodbye, grabbed their lunch pails, and made that, that descent like they did every day. But only this day was going to be a different kind of day because on this day, that mine would collapse and those, those miners would be trapped underground 2,500 feet for 69 days. The only food they had were the little bit of food they took for their lunch and a little bit of water that they had. It was the only resources they had for that entire period of time. Initially, they, it was thought that the men were had died in the, in the cave-in, but it was soon discovered that they were very much alive. And so an effort, all-out effort began in order to help rescue these, um, these miners. And so the Chilean government went into action. They, they pulled from experts all around the world in engineering and contractors and rescue personnel so they dug another shaft that was right beside the shaft of the original one into the mine, and they went all the way down to the bottom of where they knew where, you know, the depth of where the miners were located. And there, one by one, they used a small torpedo-like capsule known as the Phoenix, and they would lower that down, and all, all the miners were rescued by getting in this little capsule, like you can imagine being in a capsule like this and being hoisted up. 2,300 feet through the earth because the shaft was not much bigger than the phoenix was. And when they would reach the top, one by one, the entire country, or you know, those who were there working as well as all of the uh, residents of the area, they would, you know, s start celebrating. You know, there was confetti, there was balloons, there was great celebration. The um, president of Chile was there to hug and to greet each and every man who came out of that torpedo tube. And when number 15 came through, and he came out of that tube, and this is the, the tagline, is that the Chilean um, president grabbed that man, gave him a bear hug, and he said the statement, welcome to life. Welcome to life. So each and every one of those who were rescued while the whole world was watching, with the wonder of the courage and the determination of the rescue, rescuers who were not going to stop until every single miner came out of that mine safely. And they did so tirelessly. And so, just as these rescue workers pulled together to complete an impossible mission to save lives that were hanging in the balance, this is exactly the call of Jesus Christ to the church, is that we are to be on a rescue mission, helping to rescue those who are the perishing. And like the phoenix, Jesus, you know, came into the world and he died to pay the penalty of man's sin and he was raised from the dead in order to offer us an eternal life. And like the phoenix, those who, 
who come into relationship with Christ, who become in Christ and Christ in them, you are enveloped in Christ, and he's like the phoenix who, phoenix who takes you to safety, and it's now new life that has sprung up inside of you. This is the need of every human being born into this world. This is the call of the church that we would go and we would be sent, Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me. Our calling, our mission is to the enter into the world to those who are far from God and bring them hope in the gospel. Every church should be called Camp Hope because that's what they named the place where the workers exercised their rescue mission in order to save those miners. And just as it took an army of people with different talents and skills and abilities to pull this off, Paul has reminded us that God has given each of us different spiritual gifts and talents and abilities to pull off the mission that he has granted to us to go into the world and to make disciples so that we become a camp hope. We are the one who offers the world Jesus Christ the only one who can bring hope and healing into the heart and the life of individuals who are far from God. And so Paul began this particular chapter by saying, hey, when we come to the Lord every day of our lives and we surrender our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto him, this is our spiritual act of worship. When we put Jesus first, then everything else is good enough. But if we reverse that and put everything else in our lives as first, then what we give God is just good enough. Jesus said we are to seek first the kingdom of God. We are to bring our talents and our gifts and abilities. And collectively together, we are called on mission to rescue those who are perishing. This is God's call and his commission upon our lives. And as we renew our mind in Christ and we begin to develop the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, we begin living lives that sense that mission that is called upon us. And we do so out of love. We do so driven by love. We do so driven by not just ordinary love, but what the Bible calls agape love, the only kind of love that we can express as the Lord Jesus lives his life in and through us. And Jesus said the single most defining characteristic of his church should be its love. He says you, your love for one another, he told his disciples, is how the world's going to recognize that you actually belong to me. And at the end of the day, what convinces the world about the Lord Jesus Christ is not my ability to argue them into the kingdom. It's not my ability to lay out all of the facts and figures that's somehow going to woo them into the kingdom. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, what attracts people or detracts them from the church is our ability or inability to love one another. That's how the world's going to know that we are authentic. So the question of the day is this, and what Paul addresses in the remaining verses of this chapter is, how, how do you react towards people who disappoint you, towards people who have let you down, towards people who have used you or abused you, who have um, treated you unfairly in some form or fashion? And so Jesus Really, Paul draws off of the example of Christ as he writes these words because Jesus was often mistreated. He was often misunderstood. He was often used and abused by his family, by his friends, ultimately by the nation of Israel, and ultimately by the world. Even yet today, people 
ridicule Christ. They make fun of him. They, they say all kinds of things. So Paul comes along and he couches this in love. He says in verses 9 through 21, the most important driving force, the way that we show the, the gospel is authentic, the fuel that fires our soul and our passion for the lost is going to be our ability to love them in the way that Christ loves them. So last week we looked at verses 9 through uh, 14, or 9 through 13, and he says this, genuine love exhibits sincerity. It's not phony, it's not fraudulent, it's not, it has no hint of hypocrisy. He says, love that is grounded in truth and filled with passion and that expresses itself through tangible actions is love that will be sincere. Now, in those verses, he was talking primarily about our love for one another within the context of the body of Christ. But then he kind of moves outside of that to, well, what about those outside the body of Christ? This can happen in the body of Christ, but what about outside of the body of Christ when people tend to treat you unfairly, let you down, disappoint you, or, you know, maybe even do, you know, heinous acts towards you? How are we to respond to love? So here's the second major characteristic he gives about genuine love, and that is genuine love seeks harmony. It seeks harmony. Look in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So he says if we're going to live in genuine love, and in a harmonious relationship, number one, you have to avoid retaliation. Revo avoid retaliation. He says, love, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, the foremost trait of human nature is self-defense. Right? If, if you were to be walking out of church onto the parking lot and somebody hurled a basketball at your head, what are you going to do? The automatic response is you're going to close your eyes, you're going to duck, and you're going to put up your arms as a defense mechanism. If somebody starts pushing against you, what's your natural reaction? You're going to push back. So, for example, if somebody you walk into work and somebody just starts blasting you, and just, you know, just uh, verbally degrading you, what's your instinctive reaction? They push you, I'm going to push back. That's just our natural fallen nature at best. I remember my sister, my oldest sister at one time, I don't remember exactly how old I was, she got so mad at me, and she had scissors in her hand, and she threw them at me. So what was my natural instinctive reaction? Well, I'm going to cover up, I'm, I'm hunkering down, I want it to miss. Now, uh, the question is, did I pick those scissors up and hurl them back at her? It will forever be a mystery. <laughs> but what's your natural reaction? When somebody does something rude to you in traffic and then somehow acts like it's your fault, is cursing you, and they're honking their horn, and when they drive by, they give you the single finger salute? What is your natural, normal reaction? To roll down your window and say, 
Bless you in the name of Jesus. Hope you have a great day. Probably not. People push you, you push back. And so when people curse you and persecute you, what that means is they're against you, and it's personal. It's not somebody else. They're personally attacking you. They're against you. And the result is we can return fire with fire. So what does Paul say? That's not what love does. Love doesn't retaliate. Notice what he started right out of the gate. Bless those who persecute you. What does the word bless mean? In the, in the Greek, it's where we get our English word to eulogize. It's what we hear often in a funeral. If somebody's given the eulogy of someone who has died, you're not going to stand up in front of everybody and tell everyone all the horrible things they've done. Well, let me just tell you about my Uncle Joe. He was a horrible man, I tell you. He, and just go, no, you're going you're gonna to think about what, what, are the, what is the best thing I can say about this person? How can I eulogize them that will honor them rather than to degrade them? This is the word that Paul is using when he says, bless those who persecute you, eulogize them. That means find something positive to say, not just something negative. Because our natural normal instinctive reaction is you say something about me I'm going to say something about you that's worse than you said about me and this is what the Bible calls slander and I'll go to all my friends and I will slander you and the purpose of slander is to make everyone else feel uh, you know as bad about you as I feel about you this is this happens on social media all the time people get into a war with one another on social media and he says when people persecute you you're going to talk good about them now is that natural is that normal no what we would rather say is like well I hope karma gets them you know something they did something to me I hope something bad happens to them I hope some way and somehow if I'm not the one getting back at them I hope somebody does I hope they 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 receive exactly what they've given me and that's kind of the attitude that we carry around. And when you do that and you're waiting for that to happen, you have just poisoned the well of your heart and you have, you have created within you the opportunity for bitterness to begin to spring up within you. And that anger and that hurt and that bitterness evolves into resentment and into unforgiveness. And so one of the great protectors from what is happening inside of you is to be able to strike back, to counter back in grace, not with fire. And this is exactly what Jesus gives us as an example of his own life, is it not? When Jesus demonstrated this on the cross, he was being crucified, he was being, they were persecuting him, they were they were, you know, cursing him and literally destroying him and trashing him right in front of his mama. And what did Jesus do? How did he respond? Does he return fire with fire? No, he returned grace in replacement of fire. And he begins praying and he says in those words, Father, forgive them because they do not understand what they are even doing. And so rather than retaliating cursings and, you know, hurling all kinds of accusations to give them. Listen, 
all of those people were hurling insults to Jesus. He knew every single one of them personally. He knew their every sin. He knew their every flaw. He knew their every motive. He could have eviscerated them by saying, well, let me tell you and let me expose you to the world around you. But instead, he responded in grace. But what is our natural tendency? Someone says something bad about me, I'm going to say something bad about them for everyone to hear. Let me expose all of their sin for everyone to see so that they will have a very negative connotation about this person. It doesn't come natural, and Paul, Paul understands that. But he says, this is where we are to bless those who persecute. We are to bless and, and not to curse. And he, he goes on to say that we're, you know, that we're not to retaliate, you know, fighting fire with fire. He says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, when you think about your usual attitude toward your enemy, you, you, you weep at your enemy's rejoicing and you rejoice at their weeping. Right? It's a form of retaliation. If somebody has hurt me in some way, and then all of a sudden they, they run upon bad luck, like they lose their job or they lose their home or something negative happens to them, rather than weeping with them, I will rejoice over their misfortune because after all, in the past, they have hurt me. And they have degraded me and they have retaliated against me. And so our natural instinct is not to return fire with grace, but to return fire with, with fire. I mean, how many of you, now let's, let's I, I should take a show of hands, but I won't. How many of you rejoiced when TCU beat Michigan? Yeah. That's what I thought. How many of you will rejoice when Dallas Cowboys win tomorrow night? Don't be hating on me. <laughs> Depends on what team shows up. And so one of the ways that you know that you have been released from all hidden bitterness towards somebody is that you can authentically rejoice when they are rejoicing and weep when they are weeping. Now, I've discovered in my own life and the observation of many lives throughout the course of my ministry that it's pretty easy for us to weep with those who are weeping, but it's almost impossible at times for people to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Let's say, for example, you work with somebody who tarnished your character, and then working in the same department, they got promoted to a job over you. They're now going to be your supervisor. They're going to make twice as much money as you make, and you feel more qualified than they are for that position. Will you rejoice with their rejoicing? That depends on whether or not you're harboring something against them. You see where Paul's tracking with this? This can happen in marriages. It can happen in families. It can happen in relationships with our children. Can you genuinely celebrate with those who are prospering around you. Now, most of us have two kinds of friends. We have weeping friends and rejoicing friends. How do you know the difference between the two? Well, if you have weeping friends, 
They're always sad, bummed out, down, life's always a wreck, they're always having a bad day. And uh, if you call them and say, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm really having a great day today. Rejoice with me. And they'll go, well, at least sometimes somebody's having a good day. Because it's never a good day for them, right? They're, they're your weeping friends. Then you have your, the, the exact opposite. You got your rejoicing friends who are always happy. They're always optimistic. They're always looking on the bright side. The cup was always half full. They're cheering all the time. They cling to verses like, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And, you know, verses like, we are more than conquerors in Christ. And God works all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his, his purposes. And they always have these little pithy statements like, well, you know, when, and I'd hear these statements when I was, you know, battling cancer and maybe it was a really bad day for me. And they, they would come back with these pithy statements. Well, you know, you know, when God closes a door, he always opens a window to which I wanted to respond. Everything inside of me wanted to respond. Yes. So that I can climb through that window in the middle of the night and suffocate you with a pillow. That's what I really want to do. Now, is that loving? Of course not. So did I send that text? No. Was I thinking those thoughts? It's, it's a mystery. You're never going to know. Oh, my word. So love is not just thinking of yourself. It's thinking of others. And again, so... There are always times in our lives in which we're rejoicing over things, the good things that are happening to us, and there are times in our lives that we're weeping. And so the question is, can we enter into the realm and to the, into the world of the person that we have relationship with? Because Paul is talking all about relationships in this chapter. And can we truly rejoice with people when they're rejoicing without being, oh, it should have been me, it should have been me, it should have been me. And can we really weep with those who are weeping and crawl into the space in which they find themselves so that we're not just coming up with pithy little statements for them, but we are actually entered into the realm of their misery. Because this is what love does. Jesus climbed into the realm of our misery, and he has climbed into the realm of our rejoicing. And he says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Don't be, be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited. Well, what does he mean by that? You want to live in harmony with one another. You want to, you, you, unity is where strength is, right? So if Jesus says a house that's divided against itself cannot stand. But there's power in unity. We see this in the Tower of Babel back in Genesis when the people uh, uh, on earth decided to make heaven on earth apart from God and they were building this tower. What did God do? He confused their language and he, he separated them geographically because God says they are united and there is nothing they cannot do in their unity. And so God had to break up the unity. Listen, unity is of God in the church of Jesus Christ but division is not. And so Paul says, if there ought to be a place that's unified and not divided, it ought to be in the body of Christ because that's the way we love one another. We rejoice with one another. We weep with one another. And there is no retaliatory thing that happens in our lives because we're not going to be pride. 
prideful, and we're not going to say, well, you know, for example, do you, have you surrounded yourself in a culture where somebody can challenge you and speak truth into your life without you becoming prideful and saying, well, no, there's nothing wrong with me. Get away from me. You, you know, I, I don't want to hear it. No, he says that we, this is the way we, we build our lives. This is the way we build character is that we allow people to speak into our lives and we associate with all types of people, not just certain ones that we like or don't like. And that's why he, he says in, in verse 16, don't be probably be willing to associate people with what? With what? Low position. You see, in our world in which we live, we think people... You know, um, you know, they're up here and they're down here. We've got the rich and we've got the poor. We've got the good-looking and we've got the ugly. We've got, you know, we, we just, that's the way we separate and categorize and pigeonhole our society. And Paul is saying, hey, um, it doesn't matter if they're up here, down here, or anywhere in between. We ought to love them. And we ought to love them in a way that we seek a way to live in harmony with them. I mean, think about Jesus in heaven. He was having a great day. He's sitting on his throne, being worshipped by the angels. And he looks down upon planet Earth, and he sees that what should have been paradise has become a valley of a dump. And people are harming one another, and there's just no love that's happening on the planet. And so what did he do? He came down here, and he came down to us who are the low, lowly, fallen, sinful people on planet Earth, and he lived in a small town and not a big town. He came to a poor family, not a rich family. He, he, he made his livelihood as a carpenter, not as a politician. I mean, you just look at the life of Jesus. You see the lowliness of Christ. And so he, he was willing to associate, and he associated himself not with the upper class, upper crust of the Roman Empire. He associated himself primarily in the Gospels with those who were considered outcasts, by society. And he says, there's your example. Be people of character. Don't overlook the people who look like Jesus, the people that the culture tends to overlook. Do not be conceited. Now, here's why Paul is saying all this. Because if I'm a prideful, conceited person, I won't rejoice with people who rejoice. I won't weep with those who weep. I'm better than that. And when somebody challenges me or confronts me in my pride, I will not allow those words to penetrate my heart. They'll just bounce off of me, and nothing changes. And prideful people, especially narcissistic prideful people, they're never at fault. They're always right. And retaliation for a prideful person, in your mind, is just. And God says... It is not. We find a way not to retaliate. We find a way to live in harmony. And number two, he says, always respect that which is right. In verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of how many people? Everyone. Always respect what is right. You know, as we are living out our Christian life, and how we interact with people and how we respond to people. Guess who's watching? Everybody around you. If I've got little children in my car with me and I'm dad and I'm driving and somebody cuts me off, how I respond to that person, little eyes and little ears are absorbing all of it. 
When you go into a store and you're fired up and you're mad because something's not right, and you just light into that person who's behind the counter with both barrels, and you've got somebody tagging along with you, they're watching that. They're observing that. Everybody around you is watching that. Everybody around you is observing that. It doesn't matter whether they know you or not. You are setting a pattern for your life that other people are observed. What did Jesus say? The world will know you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. And the way that you respond to certain circumstances and situations. We had an event here in our church with Kids Club. A parent came in who was just all fired up and just lit into one of the teachers with both barrels. And the supervisor came out, took her in the office. They had a confrontation. I watched the video. I timed the, everything. And because this individual who did all this wanted me to call them. And I did. I called her up and I said, so... Uh, obviously, uh, you were having a bad day. And she says, yeah, I was having a bad day. And, I, uh, you know, the first thing she told me was, you know, I'm a Christian. And, and, you know, you guys are supposed to be a Christian organization. And this is how I was treated, yada, yada, yada. And, and I said, I just like, kind of let her go on and on. And I said, you know, um, I watched the video of everything that happened. And... I said, you know, you really came in there with both barrels. She said, well, well, I had a really bad day, and I was really stressed, and my daughter's new coming to here, and I just, I know I shouldn't have responded like that. I shouldn't have acted that way, and on and on. And I said, well, okay, so my supervisor may have probably could have handled that a little bit differently, but you are the one who instigated this. I know, so... Right? So this is how we are, right? This is, these are the things that we fall into, and we all respond at times in ways that are inappropriate. And so what Jesus said to us is that, look, you've got to think about how you're in control of your life. A fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. You have to maintain control. So one of the things I said to the supervisor, I said, listen, if somebody comes in here, both barrels blazing, you always think, like a police officer, how can I de-escalate this situation? How can I de-escalate it? How can I use my words to bring the art? Because if you start fighting fire with fire, guess what? You push me, I'm pushing you back, and then things get out of control really quickly. How can I de-escalate? This is what we have to always ask ourselves. What is the right thing to do here? How can I de-escalate this situation? And it's harder for us to do in... Uh, you know, because of technology. You know, Paul, when he wrote these words, was, you know, several thousand years ago, or even when I was growing up, if you had a problem, like, let's say you did something wrong, uh, for example, one time, okay, I shot an arrow through the back door window of my neighbor's house, um, and <laughs> obviously they were upset, right? A, a bow and arrow comes flying through the back window of their house, and so, <laughs> so, um, so obviously it was, you know, the, the mother and father were pretty heated and they, you know, wanted to talk to my mom. So they have to get up off their chair, march across the street, and, you know, eyeball to eyeball confront my mother about what her son has done. And so, you know, it, in those situations, especially when it involves kids, you know, mama bear is always going to protect their cubs and it can get really heated really fast and things can escalate out of control. Now, in our day and time... Um, we use technology more, more so than ever. 
And so rather than, you know, having to get up out of your house, get in your car, drive to where it is you need to go and confront the person eyeball to eyeball, face to face, we just pull out our phones and we use our thumbs and we just start texting, right? Or, or go, you know, our neighborhood has a Facebook page and people go on Facebook and, ah, this is what your kids did. And, and they're going back and forth about what they did. For example, one day uh, there, there's a group of kids running around our neighborhood who had frozen hot dogs and they were throwing them at, the, at, at your window. Like, so a frozen hot dog hits my window. <laughs> what the heck? Why a frozen hot dog? So, so I jumped on the Facebook page, and I saw, you know, because I couldn't tell who did it, and I just saw a bunch of people posting about that, that they were throwing it at their garage doors. And I said, well, you know, they, they kind of hit my window, ha, ha, ha. And so uh, I didn't think anything about it. Well, about two hours later, I get a knock on the door, and here's the mother with her son, and she had brought him to my porch and said, all right, tell him what you did and apologize. So, like, I'm trying to keep from laughing, okay, because this kid's like, you know, you can just tell he just wants to melt, like, you know. And so he does. He apologized, told me what he did, you know, this, so we went through all that. But nowadays, we, you know, we, we do that via social media, via texting, and we don't really do things face-to-face, and sometimes things just don't get resolved. So here's my... Here's, here's what I think Paul would challenge us with. Before you react to something, you might want to shoot up a prayer. So rather than reacting to the person and what they've said or done, you're reacting to the Lord and what he tells you how you ought to respond. Because there is a right way and there is a wrong way to respond. Number three, you want to aim for reconciliation. Verse 18, he says, if possible, if at all possible, as far as it is, uh, depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, notice he says, if it's possible, it's not always possible. For example, if you're the offended party, um, you may, you know, somebody who's offended you comes to you and says, hey, I just want you to know I'm really sorry for what I said. I shouldn't have said what I said. Uh, would you please forgive me? And you're the offended one, and your you know your response would be, yeah, you, uh, you know you really hurt my feelings, but it's okay. I I've gotten over it, but I, I appreciate you coming and apologizing to me, and certainly I, I forgive you. I you know I, I just I just want to be you know brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ or whatever whatever it is, and so you respond in that way. But sometimes when you come to somebody. <laughs> And you say, you know what, I'm really sorry for what I did or for what I said. I didn't really mean to hurt your feelings. They don't want your apology. They just want to light into you. Like, they just want to go after you. There's, no, there's nothing you can say, there's nothing you can do that's going to satisfy their anger and their bitterness and resentment towards you. So Paul says, if it possible, but it's not always possible because some people just don't want reconciliation in the relationship. Nor does Paul mean that if you seek reconciliation with somebody who's hurt you, it doesn't mean that you're going to be BFFs uh, because you have tried to mend that relationship, okay? So sometimes there might always be a sense of strain that is, it, it, that is there, um, but you have to create boundaries in that relationship if that is, if that is the case. So here's kind of a three-step process I try to think about is, that you, he says, that you don't want to avoid the offender. In other words, you just don't sweep it under the carpet. 
Sometimes people avoid their offender as a form of payback. Like you're in a small group, somebody says something insensitive to you, and you're just like, I'm done here. I'm, I'm leaving this group. Right? So that's a form of payback. Or, you know, it can be a lot of different scenarios, even in the, even in the public realm. You just kind of withdraw from everybody and into your Christian bubble because it's just a form of, of payback. So when you think about it, denying someone your presence like this is the ultimate punishment, right? Well, you're not worthy of my presence any longer because you hurt my feelings. You offended me. And the spirit of offense is something that Jesus talked about often. We're so easily offended anymore, and so people are just like, oh, I'm done with you, you're dead to me, ah, we're done, right? He says... <laughs> This is, like, this is like the ultimate form of God's final judgment. What's God's final judgment? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? Depart from me because I never knew you. That's the essence of hell. Depart from me. God's presence is departing from you. And what we're saying in essence is somebody, to somebody is, hey, if you've offended me, if you've hurt me in any way, depart from me. I never knew you anymore. And so you're really casting judgment upon a person because in your eyes, you know, you, they are not worthy of your presence any longer. Paul would rebut against that and say, no, we need to seek to live in harmony. We're not here to retaliate. We're not, we've got to respect and do what is right in the eyes of God. And we're aiming for the reconciliation of this relationship, not the severance of it. Now, you might try to reconcile and the other person doesn't want it. There's nothing you can do about that. You've done your part. You can't make them do theirs. Now, I'm going to give you two caveats on this. Number one is, I'm not saying there's never, there's never a time to regulate your relationships. Because if you are like oil and water with this person, again, you've got to set some boundaries. The second caveat is this. This does not mean, nor does it ever mean, that you have to stay in an abusive relationship. If you are in an abusive relationship, you need to get out and get out now. God has never called you to you know, entertain an abusive relationship, nor if the, the relationship you, know, you are being criminally taken advantage of, you need to get out. God's put into place, and we'll talk about this next week, institutions, God's instruments, to bring justice and peace for your protection. And so, again, God's intention is not for you to remain in an unsafe situation or situation in which you're being exploited. That's not what he's saying. But we don't, by and large, want to avoid the offender. We want to express loving words and actions, as he's already talked about. And here's the, the next one, is you, you need to forgive any repayment. That's what forgiveness means. It means to cancel a debt that somebody owes you, to cancel the repayment, that you're expecting of them. And here's why. Because it is essential to your own emotional being for that to take place. Dealing with emotions from the past all the way back to your childhood has everything to do with how you handle conflict in the here and now. I'm telling you, if you're carrying around all this emotional baggage that you've not dealt with adequately, you've not resolved adequately, it affects every single 
aspect of your life, your decision-making, conflict resolution, it impacts your marriage, your family, your relationships, your workplace, everything. When we fail to deal with what is below the surface, it's like pulling up weeds out of your yard, but the root is left behind only to spring up a little bit later. So what happens over time is your emotional system begins to build inside. It is seeding. It is smoldering. It's like an iceberg, you know, 10% above the surface, 90% below the surface. And this natural buildup of pressure over time will result in an emotional explosion. That's why you might come across a person who's been beat, you know, seething on the inside for years and years, and then they're about to the boiling point. They're like a volcano waiting to erupt, and you happen to do something, say something that seems seemingly insignificant, and all of a sudden they just explode all over you. And you're like, where in the heck did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. All the unresolved stuff, the baggage you keep carrying around with you that's not been dealt with. Or some of you, rather than exploding, you, you, your effect is you just shut down. And then you express your seething anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness through passive-aggressive means. It's going to come out. It's just a question of how it's going to come out. And so we have to deal with the past in order to be free from the past. Forgiveness, someone has said, is unlocking the door to set someone free, realizing that you are the prisoner. I think that's a pretty good description. It is the relief valve of life. Forgiveness releases us from bitterness and the burden of vengeance, and you're no longer, you're no longer the victim. As long as you keep nursing this stuff, it will damage your heart. And as my wife reminds me often and says, you know, you become like what you focus on. Your heart's focusing on anger and bitterness and resentment, whether it's below the surface or not. You become like the person you resent. You begin to mimic them in your attitudes, your decisions, the way you carry yourself the way you reflect Christ. I mean, some of the most beautiful, wonderful, greatest individuals I've ever met have been in church, and some of the most demeaning, critical, resentful, uh, I could go on using adjectives to describe, have also been in church. What's the difference? One has dealt with the below-the-surface issues, the other has not. Listen, we all get bumped up against, right? We all carry things that have happened in our past forever, you know, etched into our memory banks and in leaking into our emotional system. But we have to deal with those issues if we're going to be emotionally healthy to have emotionally healthy relationships. And so he says, genuine love seeks harmony. And thirdly, genuine love overcomes evil. Verse 19, he says, do not take advantage, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not repay evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, with good. And so here's what he says, first of all. You've got to allow for God's response. In other words, Paul says, hey. 
Get yourself out of God's judgment seat. You don't belong there. First of all, you don't know everything. You don't know people's motive, true motives. A lot of things you don't know, a lot of things you don't understand about what's going on here. And second, you've got enough sin issues of yourself to deal with, and it's impossible for you to execute true justice in a way that avoids selfish anger. When somebody hurts me, and everything inside of me wants to hurt them back, I can either take that into my own hands or I can put them in God's and let him seek justice where justice needs to be sought. I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge of anybody. God is the judge, and he says, listen, you don't sit in the judge's chair, not against your spouse who has, was insensitive and uncaring towards you after a hard, day, hard day's work, not against your sisters, your, your brother who borrowed something they never returned, or the guy at work who spread untrue gossip about you or the person who committed a crime against you. There are some things in this life for which justice will not happen in this lifetime, but justice will ultimately be done in every person of every generation throughout the course of human history that God is that judge, and he's the only rightful judge. Number two, activate the principle of replacement. What is the principle of replacement? It's simply this. You replace your enemy's evil with good. Right? You, you replace your enemy's evil with good to replace his hatred with love, to replace unkindness with kindness. So he says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you heap burning coals, which is a Jewish metaphor. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, when people, like, treat you horribly, but in, rather than treating them horribly in return, you treat them with loving kindness, what the Holy Spirit does is he takes that loving kindness and he just starts, like, etch, just, like, you know, chipping away at their conscience and they begin to feel guilty about the way they treated you. Now, they're not going to let you know that, right? They're not going to let you know that. Um, but inside, they're thinking, why is, this, why is this person treating me so well? I've treated them horribly. Why do they keep coming back? With, with, why are they doing this? And it's God's method of beginning to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to their conscience about what they have said, what they have done, and the goal in all of this is to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can forgive and the only one who can rightfully judge. And so Paul says, man, this, this is the principle of replacement, and then you accept the responsibility of recovery. Don't ever, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, that Word overcome is a military term translated overpower. Don't be overpowered by people's evil. You don't want to pay evil back with evil because the moment you do that, you've just been overcome by the author of evil who is Satan himself. And so in closing, again, I turn to the Lord Jesus as our example. Think about what Jesus went through on our behalf. How did he overcome evil? Was it with evil or was it with good? 
is with good. And so Jesus, um, when he was finally arrested and he was taken through some sham um, trials throughout the course of the night and then throughout the, the day, the next day, they are, they are beating him. They, they plucked out his beard. They, they're beating him. And, and when the Bible says that they were beating him, like they were hitting him with this, their fist in his face, it doesn't mean just like, you know, you see now people, they have this contest where you get to slap each other up the side of the face, see who can last the longest. I don't get it as a sport, but hey, uh, whatever, to each his own. But they were beating him. They beat him so severely that the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 54 that by the time they got done, his face was so disfigured, you couldn't even recognize him any longer. And once they finished with that, and they flogged him, just filleting his neck and his back and his buttocks and his thighs and you know, crown of thorns and carrying a cross and putting nails in his hands and feet and hurling the insults and all that happened as a, you know, as a crucifixion and all that, that entailed. And so Jesus, as they're yelling crucify, I mean, when Jesus was so beaten unrecognizably, I mean, they took him back to Pilate and Pilate brought him out to his own people and he said, hey, is this not the man? In other words, is this not enough? Are you not satisfied with what you have done with him? To which the crowds respond, no, crucify him. And he's crucified on a cross, a Roman cross, which is a horrible way of execution. It is a public shame against a human being. And yet Jesus mustered up enough strength and enough of his voice to utter seven statements. And again, the very first statement of Jesus was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He perfectly overcame evil with good, and he gave us an example to follow in his steps because genuine love always exhibits sincerity, seeks harmony, and overcomes evil with good. Jesus did it. He's called us to do it, and he's equipped us with the Holy Spirit and his love to pull it off. The question is, how will we respond when people against us. That depends on whether or not you're walking in the influence and the power of the Spirit of God. You'll either respond in the Spirit or you'll respond in the flesh. And the outcomes of those two avenues is vastly, vastly 